Okay, I believe I have everything up and working. Hopefully. Hello out there. Good day. And welcome back to another Merged World stream. Um, uh, I've got a kitty you can see just off screen. Little Buffy here is wanting some attention right as I was about to get started, silly girl. i am uh, got some story for you folks tonight. Hopefully you'll enjoy it. Um, uh, if anything looks a little wonky or unsmooth, I apologize. I uh, was prepping to go live about 15 minutes ago, and something happened with my OBS, and everything defaulted back to the basics, and I had to quickly set up a whole new scene, so hopefully everything works smoothly. Hello, Ms. Ashley. Welcome and good day. Um, about to jump into some story. Uh, we will be continuing with uh, Seraph's tale today. Although we're not too, too far from uh, taking a look back at the other group very soon. Hello, Mr. Jim. Um, I'm excited to get over to that side of the story as well. As much as I enjoyed both sides of it, uh, I think you guys are really going to like the new stuff over there. Because um, definitely, as I've, I've said a few times, time is going by. So when we switch over to the other group, it will be at the same time period when this ends. So there'll be a space in there. That will be explained. So, um, yeah, so we're going to jump right back in, do just a brief recap. Again, uh, shooting for between an hour, an hour and a half for the story today, which I think we have uh, more than enough material to last that long. So hair is growing fast. Yeah, I need a haircut really, really bad. I just don't have the money right now. So uh, if you're watching out there on the uh, YouTube uh, streams, you'll notice that I am uh, getting a shaggy. I turned the beard up some today. A lot of the green and red is gone out of the beard now. Uh, it's a couple more shaves, and that'll be uh, finit. And I'll be back to my dapper brown self. Um, brown hair. Uh, so where we left off in the story is uh, our group of heroes, Seraph, Dina, Deacon, and Mugen, had been uh, attacked by... Forces of Oromon uh, within the city they were staying. Uh, they received assistance uh, from a drow elf who gave his name as Vincentius, uh, who, which we know, but they do not. So Vincentius uh, said that he can help them escape the city through an underground tunnel system used by the... Uh, it, was, it used to be used by the Goblin uh, Network section of the city. That they used to sneak contraband in and out, but that this, the uh, the tunnel itself had been, I guess you'd say, abandoned soon after the merge uh, due to threats inside that were undefinable. Uh, still the best way to get out of the city uh, and escape Ormond's forces. Uh, Vicentius selflessly joined the group um, and agreed to lead them through the tunnels uh, to uh, a small city, small town, uh, a distance east of the, where their location, where they would exit out and then begin to make their way through the very dangerous mountains over to the other side uh, of those where there's an elven nation. Again, all in the attempts of trying to get further away from Ormon. Uh, Mugen, of course, if you remember, was injured during uh, an earlier fight, and while he's on the mend, he still is having a little bit of uh, weakness and such. He's, his arms uh, stiff and things of that nature. He got stabbed through the shoulder. So he is on the mend. We'll talk more about that as we get into today's story. But where we left off, they had made camp underground for the first night, taking turns on watch. 
and then uh, we let there with a little bit of uh, self-musing from Vincentius, some of the thoughts that were on his mind. Hopefully, you folks enjoyed that little glimpse into uh, what is clearly the younger version of the villain of this entire storyline, which I'm excited about. I'm excited that you know, he's just not a dude way out there that eventually they have to one day fight, and until then there's no motivations, there's no interactions. Uh, it's going to be much more involved than a lot of traditional villains might be. So, All right, let's uh, jump on in. So uh, they made it through that evening. No, nothing wrong. Nothing happened. Uh, Vincentius didn't do anything, but neither were they attacked or bothered by anything else, living or dead or whatever. Uh, it was a relatively peaceful sleep, as much as one can be when you're a distance underground. Um, Vincentius, of course, perfectly comfortable underground. The others, not so much. Uh, Mugen, a little less bothered by it, because um, a lot of the uh, Gullyville Nation uh, is underground. In the uh, They use that sewers and subway systems of what was old, decimated New York to uh, kind of get from one place to the other. Above ground, there's a lot of rubble and uh, other dangerous things to deal with. We've not gone into a lot of the details of what's in Gullyville, I can promise you that one day we will actually address that. I mean, we're, we're going to get a lot more in-depth with Gully, New Gullyville uh, in the future. Uh, so before I jump in and get right into everything, though, I should, of course, give the uh, thanks for everyone coming in, uh, either watching this here on YouTube or listening to it on any of the uh, different uh, platforms you can hear, podcasts, iTunes, Apple, um, or uh, Google Spotify, all that stuff. I'm on all of those. So if you uh, haven't yet, please swing over there. Give us a follow. And while you're here, if you're on YouTube, uh, if you wouldn't mind giving this stream a like and uh, a follow to the channel as well, it would be greatly appreciated. Um, in our in my Discord, which I have a Discord. You'll find links for that on my website, onlydraven.com. Um, had a, a new person join up this week who found my channel and everything through Merged Worlds on an audiobook, audio podcast site, which I think is the first time that I'm aware of that happening. Or at least I'm sure other people may have, but it's the first time they've come into the Discord and, and said so. So it's, uh, it was kind of exciting to see that comment from someone who discovered me and my channel through Merged Worlds, which is probably uh, the smallest part of the channel, but my favorite <laughs> that I get to do. Um, so it was, it was exciting to have uh, someone find us this. He was pretty much all caught up. The newest uh, episode, 93, should be up today. 94 will be up tomorrow. And then this one should be up on Friday. Yes, tomorrow's Wednesday. So Thursday or Friday. So we should be all these should be up and going. I finally got the website issue with uploading fixed So uh, earlier today. So we'll start seeing those pop on uh, iTunes, Spotify, and all those other places, you'll see them catch up here in just the next day or two. So apologize for the delay there. Finally got it fixed. So they, uh, they went through the night. No issues. They have plenty of supplies. Uh, this should only be a couple-day journey. Um, in fact, in many ways, it's faster than traveling overland, right? You don't have to worry about terrain, going in and out of towns and gates, and making your way through cities or windy roads. This is just supposedly a primarily straight tunnel going from one location to another, letting them pop up in the city where Vincentius says he has allies who can help them with additional supplies for their journey through the mountains. 
So they get up and they get get on and they continue going east. Um, the tunnel itself, as I've described, is wide enough for three people to kind of go through side by side. So it's it's very spacious and it's tall enough um, that about so it's about square, I'd say, maybe just a little bit lower than it is wide, but enough so that a wagon with a small horse or mule could be pulled through there. Uh, again, transporting goods was the original design. And it goes down a ways, flattens off, comes up a ways. Um, they had to go relatively deep, you know, for sturdiness and as well as to uh, avoid any discovery from the legal authorities above back when this uh, tunnel was needed. So, as they've been traveling, as I mentioned previously, they're not running into any problems. They haven't found any things living or signs of living. There's not even really anything in the way of moss or mold or anything like that. It's just very dry and rock. Not a lot of, uh, I guess you'd say, humidity or condensation. So not a lot of water down here. It's a very dry, uh, I'd say you say, dust, dusty tunnel. Probably the easiest way to describe it. So there's nothing in the way of footprints. They don't see any signs that anything has moved through this area. There is some dust that's going to, a layer of dust that's going to settle on the ground. That would only be natural as the, the Earth or the planet does its shifting and shakes and movements as most worlds are, are wont to do. Uh, so there's a layer of dust. But up until this point, they've not seen anything that would uh, be any type of footprints or, or anything that would let them know there's anything else down here. Um... As mentioned before, they do have a couple torches out. Uh, Deacon has one in the back. Uh, and I believe Dina was carrying one as well. And the, the purpose of that is is Dina and Deacon don't have infravision. Like Mugen, uh, Seraph, and Vincentius do. So they would have a harder time seeing. So the, the torches for them. Uh, Seraph is still out front. And sometimes he gets a little bit ahead. So that way his eyesight in the infravision can help a little bit. But if you have infravision and you're around a light source, it just doesn't work. Your eyes have to adjust into an infrared spectrum, which will allow you to see in the dark. Um, anytime they come across a branch of tunnel, you know, whether it goes left or right or both, he will stop and let them catch up. And they cross through those areas together. He doesn't stay ahead. He only stays ahead until he sees something of... Of note, and then he'll stay with them till they're a ways past it. Deacon paying extra attention to what's behind them at those times. So they had been traveling for several hours. They would say it's about midday, noonish, one o'clock at this point would be their estimate. There's no sun. You're guessing underground, right? They could be way off, but they're not. So it's about midday, and that's when they finally come across the first body. Now. The first body itself they come across uh, is, is remains, but has definitely been there for a while. Uh, there's no flesh of any kind, muscle tissue or anything. It's just bones and cloth uh, for the clothing, cloth or leather that would have been wrapped on it. And that most of that is missing as well. Um, upon inspecting the body, they find that the bones have been strewn about. So it's not like just a skeleton sitting up against the wall. It's just bones spread over a small section of the tunnel, all within sight of each other. They're not a great distance. Uh, but it's almost like someone came around and kicked it, right? All the bones went flying in different directions. It's not what happened, but to kind of give you a visual of, of what, what we're looking at here. 
they take a few moments to spend time investigating it. This is the first sign of danger. Remember, there's been many years since anything that they're aware of living has come down through this tunnel. So if it has been 18, 20 years like they were told, these may be the remains of some of those people that last came in here to investigate what the danger was or was stopping uh, caravan groups or goods coming through. Um, and upon closer inspection, they learn that uh, they, they do find that on the bones, the bones are not smooth. So there are markings on them um, that would be, I'm trying to say the right word here, that would be evidence of something chewing on them, if that makes sense. Mark, teeth marks, sharp teeth marks on the bones. That's probably the best way to explain that. Um, all, you know, Seraph and Deacon, even Mugen, would have some knowledge of these type of things, learning how to survive in the world. But uh, Vincentius, of course, would be an e even better, right? Necromancer. Deals with bones all the time, per se. Uh, so they look at it and say, yeah, this clearly looks like it's been chewed on. The teeth don't look large. They look human-sized, uh, although they appear to be relatively sharp. Dragon turtle, says Jim Cooper. Uh, no, not dragon turtle. Would not quite fit in here. Baby dragon turtle, but no. <laughs> no no dragon turtle in this situation. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you're like, okay, bite marks. And sharp, right? They don't appear to be giant, which makes sense because nothing big could fit through this tunnel, you know, that they can think of. Uh, an ogre could come through the tunnel if he slouched. Um, and that was likely to have happened at times, the security. Uh, more commonly, they would probably use things like bugbears or gnolls, which are also a little bit taller than humans, uh, but sturdy, uh, more physically grunt work kind of thing. More than the goblins themselves, who might be the guides, the drivers of wagons, and so on and so forth. Uh, this appears to be the body of a goblin bones, based on what Vincentius is describing. He's like, okay, this looks like that. After they've, you know, they looked around, the, the leathers and stuff are very decayed, so it's hard to tell, though they appear that they could have been ripped apart as well. Um, it's hard for them to know for sure with it being as aged down here as it is. Hello, ghost. So finally, after they search, they don't find anything else new. They decide, okay, let's carry on and see what we're getting going to. And they travel on, and from here, they don't have to travel far for more bones to start showing up. Which, again, makes sense. Usually, it wasn't a single person traveling through here. It was groups uh, escorting goods, or in the last information they have, was groups of go the goblins sent down here, which could have included other races, uh, to come down here and find out what was disrupting those goods. So they start coming across more demi-human remains. So this is your goblins, your hobgoblins, your bugbears, all that kind of stuff. Maybe even a kobold or two. But uh, it's going to be those races, because that was primarily the races that were in this section of the world pre-merge. So as they're going through, the bodies all appear to be in the same condition. Uh, the body and the bones seem to be strewn about. And the bones all have that same... Well, some bones are just straight up broken. Uh, but... All of them have some type of little markings on them that appear to be sharp teeth. Um, as they're searching around, they get to an area where they're again searching and trying to see exactly what's going on. Uh, they actually start finding, mixing around with some of these bones, uh, weapons. Metal that would not have gone away, right? 
So they're going to find things like uh, probably swords, daggers, uh, demi-human style, right? Um, oops. Hold on one moment here. I apologize, Wiffy. Uh, your message, I tried to approve it, and it got deleted by mistake. But I did see it, Wiffy. <laughs> Hello, welcome. <laughs> so... Uh, so they, find, they start to find other things, buckles from clothing and things like that, maybe buttons from pouches. They even find some coins and stuff mixed around on the ground. So they don't believe that whatever attacked these people were coming after them for wealth because they didn't take any of the weapons or money or anything of that nature. The metal is still perfectly fine. Um, no one really says anything uh, about that when Vincentius just naturally scoops up the coins and starts putting them in a pouch. You know, he's like, he looks at him, he's like, well, what are they going to do with them? And they're like, okay, well, yeah, it makes sense. He's not really stealing from the dead. It's not like a grave robbing kind of thing. Eventually, if any goblin comes to here, they're going to take it anyways. But he does scoop up the coins, be like, yeah, no sense wasting. So they continue to find bodies of that same condition. And as they're looking through them all, it's, it's hard to figure out what, what went on, right? Trying to figure it out. And Seraph muses that aloud. He's like, ah, I wish... Like, I wish I knew what, what happened to them. I wish we had an idea of what we were looking at here. And Vincentius kind of smiles and says, all right, well then, let's find out. And he kind of picks up off the ground a, a skull. And it's clearly an orc skull by its shape and design. And he takes it and he kind of sets it down on, on a little bit of a, a ledge. The rock isn't completely smooth. He finds a place he can kind of set up about chest height. And he takes some things out of his pouch he takes out some type of what looks like a, a paint, like a tar-like paint, uh, although it's kind of red. And he begins kind of tracing some symbols on the skull. And, you know, Deacon, very interested in this. Mugen has no idea why he's painting a, decorating a skull. Like He's like, I, you know, maybe if it was like, you know, a fancy one or something. But this is an old dingy skull. It doesn't make any sense. And Seraph uh, and Dina just kind of stand there a little uncomfortable with the whole situation. They're like, man, you're playing with, you're playing with the dead. That's kind of not how that works. supposed to work. And he starts painting with his fingers some symbols and stuff and sets back and begins casting a spell, um, which only takes a moment. Once the spell is released, light starts to glow in the eye sockets of the creature, or the, the skull, if you will. Um, and so there's no pupils, there's anything, but you can see it. And Vincentius begins speaking to it in a tongue that none of the other ones recognize, uh, which is or Orcish, uh, which Vincentius can speak. Uh, as a scholar, he's going to be able to speak multitude of different languages, and uh, the demi-human races very commonly interact with Drow, normally as uh, servants or hired help and things of that nature. So uh, he, is able to, he is able to speak several of those languages. So he speaks Orcish well enough. And so he starts speaking, and he's like, what questions would you like to ask it? So Seraph begins asking a series of questions. You know, what happened to you? What happened to these bodies? How did you die? What was the threat? Things of that nature. Vincentius then speaks those questions to the skull in Orcish, and sure enough, the skull doesn't move. The teeth and mouth don't move or anything like that. It doesn't become animated, but they can hear a voice speaking. Um, and it sounds like it's coming from a distance away, and it's kind of like being funneled through the skull, so it has an echo to it. And the answers are in Orcish as well, which uh, Vincentius then passes those answers on. And basically what they learn, right, uh, is that all it could say is that creatures in the dark, claws and teeth everywhere, 
too many can't get away. Flesh ripping, screaming, and dying. Um, they ask if, you know some more specific things, but the spell itself is limited, especially on the, the fact that this uh, spell was cast, you know, it was a long preparation. If he was looking to raise a corpse, even a skeleton corpse, which he could probably do with the whole body of bones here, majority of them are here, uh, it would take considerably more time to prepare a body than that. So he just cast a very, very lower level necromantic spell, which is still a fairly high spell. But once it's done, you know, you say they got all that they can from it, and they've, they've got all that information, uh, he dis, you know, kind of dispels the spell. And when he does, the skull literally just crumbles to ash, to dust. It's kind of fall, just falls apart at that point. Uh, any, any shape of a skull is gone. It's just dust. Uh, it pulled any last living vestiges of life out of it to be able to answer those questions. So now they're like, okay, so it's not like a scary person or a scary thing. It's many things. Um, and it specifically says creatures, claws, teeth in the dark, uh, which definitely goes along the lines with what they've come across so far. Buffy is afraid. That was actually Mr. Midnight. Buffy was over there, but he, she was here too. Mr. Midnight was crying for some reason. He's my other kitty. <laughs> um, let's see. Let me catch back up to my page here. Excellent. So they definitely have some concern now. I mean, they're already worried, but this brings everything... Okay, this is too many to fight. That's not You don't want to hear those words, right? Because from what they know, the groups of goblins and orcs and such that came down here was a much larger group than they are of the five of them. Granted, they have probably considerably more skill and power than those that were sent down, but uh, still, it only goes so far when you're facing too many. From this point on, they're traveling with their weapons out. Now there's, now there's more concern. What's down here with them? Is it still down here? Been 20 years. But again, they haven't found anything like footprints in the dust or you know, feces, anything that would imply something came through here, whether it's an animal or a person. Um, so now they've got their weapons drawn and they're going a little bit more slowly, trying to be a bit more quieter, okay? which they weren't being too loud to begin with. As they move forward... Uh, within the next few minutes, they come across a broken wagon. And laying on the ground uh, before it is the remains of what was a, uh, two small horses. Again, the bones uh, kind of around the area. Um, but whatever, the bones were picked clean as well on the horses and the wagons. In the back of the wagons, they find some what were leather sacks that are still there in relatively good shape, maybe a little faded, a little crumbly. And then looking inside of them, they find iron ore, which would have been a, a valuable resource to get to a blacksmith or to a smithy of some kind, weaponsmith, uh, in the city. Uh, and so this was clear. And, it's, and the wagon, the way that it's facing, is towards the direction they're coming from. So they're coming towards the, the horses, if you would. So this was some type of delivery that was coming through the tunnel, which never arrived, which is what triggered all of this 20 years ago to send down people to find out why. And there are a multitude of bones in this area that definitely show there were multiple bodies here. Hush, buddy. Come on now, your treats are over there. Hush. Um, let's see. So it's this time when they're getting to this area that they're starting to notice something else. 
on the wall in patches are, uh, if anything, you explain them as splatters. And at first they thought maybe it was all blood. Listen, hush, buddy. Hush. Being a butt today. <laughs> that it's um, blood splatters. But when they get close to check it, because I hadn't seen any anywhere else. And even if the blood had dried, this looks a little thicker, right? And uh, it's one of those things where they get close and they're looking at it, and it's got a, 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 a greenish tint to it. And, you know, they don't touch it with their hands. They're not stupid. They get a piece of bone out and they touch it, and it's very thick and goopy, and it has a smell to it. What does the wall look like? Okay, I can explain that. So the walls of this, I had mentioned a little bit earlier, but uh, this thing itself is wide enough that three of them could walk comfortably. It's not quite as tall as it is wide, uh, but it's roughly square cut, a rectangular cut, if you would. Um, it's not a smooth wall. The parts it's broken and kind of crumbly. They, 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 it's pretty sturdy. They'll come across wooden cross beams and such every so often to help hold up uh, locations. But most of it's cut directly out of the stone. Um, very likely it was a, a, some type of natural tunnel here at one point that they've widened uh, or build a, you know, built upon to create this long tunnel. Um, so it does dip up and down and sometimes turns a bit, but more or less it's relatively straight. The walls are mostly smooth, but occasionally they'll come across a piece that's broken off because over time as the world and the Earth ships, you know, a piece may fall down. They haven't come across any actual collapses yet, but occasionally a piece will have fallen off the wall. And that's where like where he set the skull. It's a broken piece and he was able to little nooch they could set the skull up on when they were talking to it. So they come across this stuff that they can only co consider green ichor at this point. It's goopy of some kind. And uh, Vincentius and Deacon both begin talking about it. Neither of them have ever seen anything like it. Uh, they're like, okay, it's, it's obviously some type of residue. It's definitely not from the blood, anything like that. Um, and Vincentius takes time to get out of, get a pack out and unroll a leather thing. And inside of it are tucked little sturdy glass test tubes. And he uses a, a little tool to scrape some of it into one of them and caps it and such. Because, you know, it could have magical properties of some kind. And he doesn't want to leave that behind. This is very common, something for wizards to do. Uh, you can't just carry around a pouch of test tubes. They'll go smash. So having a leather, piece of leather that rolls up, kind of like someone would slip their tools into and then roll it up would be the same type of thing. Unrolling it would have different tubes. And sometimes the tubes themselves are ceramic um, or even metal, depending on what. Uh, in his, I mean, Deacon and Seraph can see, inside of this, there are different types. He'd use the glass one for this, uh, but there are different types. He's got metal ones. He's got some that appear to be wooden. Some appear that to be ceramic. Uh, again, different types of materials based on what he's trying to gather components of. Um, liquid or goopy would probably go into this type of thing. And he probably has some small jars as well. He could put powders or flowers or whatever things he finds that he wants to get. Uh, again, very common for a wizard to carry something of that nature uh, to, if they come across something out in the world that could be harvested for spell components um, or just you know, magic item components, potion components, anything that's component-based or of value. But he hasn't seen any of this, and of course not knowing what something is makes it potentially even more valuable, right? So he gets himself a, a, a test tube full of it. They're not there very long, and as they're going forward, it becomes more and more common. There's more and more of it on the walls and the floors. It's not acidic. It's not burning them or anything, and it didn't burn or smoke the bone when they're scraping it off or anything like that. Um, it's, it, it, it just is goopy and kind of slimy. 
Uh, potion type jars, yes, or preserved food jars. It's very, very likely. A lot of those are going to have, they're not going to be screw tops, of course, um, but a lot of those may have like a, a cork that you could push in, um, or it may even have a, a cap with a, with a, let me rephrase, a small ceramic jar where you put a piece of leather over it and then tie a string under the base of the jar to hold it as a lid. So the, the, the leather acts as a lid. So it's thick, but it's still pliable. So they just set that over, pull it down, almost like a saran wrap idea, and then wrap a string and tie it off in the bottom. Hello, Tyla and probably Taco. Good day. Um, so, moving forward. So different things. Again, he's going to have different, several different types of containers based on what it is he's trying to save. Um, you know, something like that is more for uh, gathering and taking back more than using. If he had something that he had, was a, a spell component he needed for a spell, he's not going to go through all the trouble of tying the thing off, taking the leather, accidentally spilling it, casting a spell. This is more for the gathering of items, which then he may have to go home if it's an herb. He has to dry it, right? Turn it into a uh, powder or something, or leaves. So there's a lot of different types of things that can be done depending on the resource that he's gathering, right? Whether it could be bone, you know, some bone dust or something. They find a dragon bone, and there's a little piece. He sticks it in one of those jars, puts a leather thing over it, makes it a little more airtight, so, you know, other things, bugs and stuff, can't get to it in the meantime. Well, thank you very much about the beard. Most of the red and green is gone now. That was from Christmas. <laughs> my beard is half red, half green, as is my hair, but it's slowly growing out. So, yeah, that's kind of how I... That's kind of when, when, when a wizard... is someone's playing a wizard character in my games, and they're like, hey, I want to be able to gather spell components, these are the things that I have them buy, right? If you're playing a wizard, you're like, hey, I want to I wanna be able to gather spell components. Okay, different parts of that could be more expensive, right? Um, it could be, hey, the, the leather, piece of leather with tucking it in could be pretty cheap, uh, getting ceramic jars, but then when you start getting to the glass ones and the metal ones, uh, or even some very, very expensive, right? You could have one that's made out of ivory or something like that, or bone itself. Maybe there's a type of resource out there that will eat through anything but bone, so they got to put it in bone for gathering. So uh, they, they would say, hey, I want some of this type of thing. I want to buy some of these. And glass being expensive. I mean, it just really is. Okay, give me just one second, if you would, guys. Bear with me one moment. Sorry, one second. Okay, sorry. I asked my wife to come down and spend some time with Midnight so he'll stop squalling on camera. He just wants some attention. I know he does, but I can't do that in this, right? Glass is more expensive than bone. That's a great question, Whiffy. It's going to depend on what type of bone you're using, right? I mean, if you want a deer bone or a cow bone, hollowing the marrow out of the middle of it, sealing the top and the bottom wouldn't be that hard. That would be easy, Right? But let's just say you want to get something that's magical in nature, and you're like, okay, I need a tube or jar made out of dragon bone. Right? That could be expensive. Glass, though, well, you, I always try to remind folks that when you're looking at things like this, uh, for, you know, in D&D &D terms, very often you're thinking of the medieval time period, right? 
And we're looking back at a time period where very often they didn't have glass mirrors. A mirror was silver or something that was very, very you know, smooth and shined out to reflect very well. Um, glass was expensive. A lot of people didn't have glass in their windows. Or if they did, it was very cloudy, uh, lower quality, sandy glass. Um, so like a nice clear glass and then formed into a sturdy test tube. Not everybody's, you're not going to just find that everywhere. Especially since it's a, a, a niche market, right? Not a lot of people are going to need that in their daily lives. So finding someone who can make that for you with the materials you need, and again, if you're a wizard or a cleric and you're gathering high-level spell components, you may want it to be of pure glass. You want high quality or you want it sturdy or thick. Things like that. These are specialty niche items. And again, I know I'm on a bit of a tangent about D&D here, but when you're playing D&D, I mean, you, every character class has the option to have things of this nature that they may want to buy at some point, especially depending on what type of secondary skills they have. They have leatherworking or sewing. They may want materials for that. I want to buy different types of leather. I want to make bags. I want to make, you know, I want to make a cape. I want to make a cloak of some kind. Uh, making your own gear is not a bad thing. It can just take time. You may have to buy buckles from a, a smith. Uh, if you're a higher level character and you want to try to create a magic item, well, then you need to do all that stuff, but with much, much higher quality materials. Uh, so if you want to make a you know a magical bag, you need very special maybe like leather of a dragon skin or of a wyvern's wing or something of that nature, um, with you know thread of a special spider silk or whatever it is to sew it together. Um, you know you you may have to have a, a a platinum clasp for the top, expertly made by an expert jewelsmith, so that it fits in there kind of thing. Um, so as a dungeon master, I really promote the use of secondary skills like that. Uh, herbalism being a very popular one. Um, by any class, right? Any, even a warrior might want to know how to use salves and stuff to heal himself. So I really, I really uh, try to give a lot of opportunity for people to use those which may be considered useless or silly secondary skills to become a very active part of their character and their even adventuring life. Uh, explaining how to play second edition. I'm getting interested in D&D adjacent games. Yeah, I could do that. I could probably schedule a behind the dice episode and talk about the basics of how second edition works. I can probably work something in the next couple of weeks for you for sure. Um, hello, scary guy. All right. So, um, it gathers some of the, the goop. is basically what we're getting to in all of that. <laughs> so, yeah, different things can be more expensive. So, they begin, they're carrying on, now they're being extra careful, right? Got that, it's a kind of a sticky ichor. It's not acidic, it doesn't burn them, it doesn't hurt them to the touch. Nobody put it on their fingers, but, you know, if they touch it with their toes, it's not eating through their, their shoes, so it's not acidic. It's not the stuff you find in the Aliens movies. <laughs> Nothing like that at all. We're not that kind of crazy loco. Um, so they're moving extra carefully. When suddenly, about that time... Seraph calls an all-stop. This is usually some type of movement that you would have worked out in the group, holding up your hand, holding up your hand, whatever, that everyone knows, stop moving and be quiet. Could be because something's up ahead and he doesn't want him to notice the movement. He might need more quiet to hear something. But he does that motion that, that everybody in the party knows. This means stop moving and shut up for a minute. I'm doing something. That's important. And not in a rude way. It's, they want him to have that, okay? What's the problem? Figure it out. Let us know. Because Seraph has heard movement up ahead. It's the first sound they've heard 
in this entire tunnel that wasn't created by them, other than when like they dropped a bone or tripped on something, a rock or whatever. It's the first non-them sound they've really come across. And you only heard it for just a moment. They all stand still for several minutes as Seraph is trying to get, but it doesn't repeat itself. It doesn't happen again. So he himself takes a few steps forward, a little bit further away from the light, a little bit further into the darkness. His eyes can see, and he can tell that up ahead, a short distance of maybe 15 feet, there's a cross tunnel going left and right. So it branches off again. And I've mentioned before, they came across some that are on the left, some are on the right, some are across. These are the, part of the network of tunnels, but they're all smaller, thinner, more narrow tunnels that aren't as, uh, as well-made as this one. Because they're thinner, they don't need as much uh, bracing to sturdy them and such. And some of them may even be natural, that they just happen to cross. And their goal, they've only been on this one straight one the whole time. As he's staying there, watching, not moving, because he sees that, he stops once he's eating and gets up close enough, his vision can see that, and something small comes from the tunnel on the left. Now, the thing itself is small, probably no more than two feet tall. From what he can see, it appears to be hairless. He doesn't see any hair on the body, and it doesn't seem to be clothed in any way. So it's not showing any pants or nothing like that. It appears to be grayish in color, and its head seems a little bit bigger than it should be for the size of the body, which is very, very thin. Its arms and legs are also very thin, and each end in either three long fingers or three long toes. So they are feet and hands. This isn't a walking-on-all-four type creature. You could tell by the leg structures, the way the knees work, it stands upright or maybe slightly hunched. The arms are a little bit longer than they should be for, for that size, so it's got long, thin arms that come into three long fingers that come down to long points. And the three toes that are at the, ba ba at the end of its feet are kind of the same way. Gollum. Not exactly Gollum, no. Reminiscent, though. Um, and then the big thing, of course, is that um, it has one large eye, very central in its head. Um, the eye takes up, oh goodness, probably a good one third of its of its round forehead. So it's you know, it's 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 a large eye, and it's 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 in such a way that it almost feels like the eye is a little bit too high. So its face is kind of, it's like its chin is down so that it can see forward with this eye that's a little bit higher on its head. The creature may have a mouth. There's a line. But it doesn't, you know, it's it, so it's closed at this point. You can't really see it. Now, Seraph is standing there with his sword out. And they're just, it's just kind of, it comes and it sees him and it just stops. Now, it's not like it's surprised by him. It came out because it saw and heard them. I mean, it, it's very determined in the fact that it came out and it's coming out relatively slowly, but slowly, but confidently. It's not sneaking or scared of him in any way. The Seraph and the creature just kind of stand there for a moment, staring at each other. Seraph not wanting to move. Kind of waiting to see what the creature does. And the creature's you know head moves just a little bit, uh, kind of like you'd picture a bird's head when it's looking at things. It's it's uh, that one eye is kind of like just tilting its head in quick little short movements to see what's going on or what it's looking at. But then 
the creature seems to have received all of the information it needs to from Seraph. And its mouth opens, and it screams. Now, when the mouth opens, what will look like a thin line for the mouth extends almost back to where the ears would be. So when it opens up, the mouth opens unnaturally large. Whole section of its head kind of opens. And it doesn't move up, so its eye goes up. The jaw just comes down further. So like the eye stays, the member said the chin's tilted down. This flaps down way more than it should. Almost like the bottom of half of kind of thing. And Seraph can see not one, but two rows of sharp, pointed, almost saw-like teeth on the bottom and in the top of its mouth. And when the thing screams, it's a very loud, shrill noise. It's unintelligible, animalistic. It does not sound like a, a language or a word that can be communicated. But the most disturbing thing is almost instantly more screams can be heard from further away. Seraph knows this is not good and calls for his friends, we've got to go. Quickly, we must move forward. If they obviously heard the scream and at this point they see it moving, okay, it's already screamed now. Everybody starts moving forward. Seraph turns back just in time to see the creature leap at him. The creature barely moved its leg. It didn't hunch down. But even though it barely moved, it hurls itself forward at an incredibly fast speed. Almost unexplainable. It just forward. And luckily, Seraph's instincts, being as fast as they are, just instinctively swings with his sword and cleaves the thing clear in two. But as he does, he feels the thing's blood splatter on him. And looking down real quick, he can see the same type of greenish goop that they saw on the walls and floors up until this point. And the screams start echoing through the tunnels. Sarah has no time to lose. He yells to his friends, we have to go fast. And they start running down the tunnel. I said, there's a branch left and right. The sounds are coming from both. And sure enough, they're barely past those tunnels before the first couple of creatures come running out of both sides, probably one first, and start running after them. They're moving as quickly as they can, running through. And as they're running, they, they can see that there are more branches to this tunnel relatively close. So one on the left, one on the right, then two again, two on the left, then two again, then right. So they're coming across a lot of these tunnels. And as they do, more of these creatures' screams can be heard. And some of them are getting out in front of them. Um, they have no choice but to try to cut their way through. Seraph is, is a little bit ahead of the group. He hates leaving them behind. But being ahead is giving him a little bit of time to try to cut several of these down or out of the way before his friends catch up trying to make that path a little clearer. And there seems to be no end to the things. Seraph can hear spells, both, both Deacon and Vincentius, both unleash spells behind them. Uh, Deacon being in the back, Vincentius kind of in the middle there, um, casting spells behind him are going to be flame spells, and things that will hit multiples at once, right? 
Magic Missile's not going to do a whole lot in this situation, but a gout of flame or a fireball could have a lot. Now, nobody actually leashes a fireball spell, though, okay? Never cast fireball in an enclosed area. All you're creating is a kiln. <laughs> this is stone. It will just capture that heat and funnel it in both directions, and it will cook you and your friends. <laughs> Do not, don't cast fireballs indoors. <laughs> Very important in your regular lives and in Dungeons & Dragons. Don't do it. It's not cool. <laughs> so they can't do anything of that nature, but flame, you know, flames that are focused in a certain direction, which is almost like a flamethrower is what blazing hands or burning hands basically is. It's a cone of flame that comes out of your hands getting wider. Perfect for something like this, although they have to turn around some to do that, which slows them down. So spells and swords are going through as, as much. The only one not really fighting is Mugen who is his, his hammer, his warhammer is a two-handed weapon, um, but he's primarily right-handed, and that's the side he's, he's stabbed in. So he, at this point, has kind of got his arm tied up almost in a bit of a sling to try to rest that. All he has is his free hand. So he really isn't in a situation to start wailing around with the hammer if he can help it. So he's just running. Uh, but even Dina has her sword out and is trying to cut. But as they're running, you know, they're getting... Something will nick, a claw will scratch. And the claws on these things are incredibly sharp, as sharp as daggers. And so they're getting these thin slices and cuts. Uh, so, so fine are their fingers at cutting that they could clearly cut meat in slices off a body should they wish to, which they do. It's not just a ah, it's a mmm. <laughs> so they're running through this, but they're easily can see how they could become overwhelmed. Um, Sarah feels a pain and looks down and see that one is latched onto his leg and literally stabbed its claws in both sides of it. He reaches down, grabs it, and rips it off his body without stopping, because he's cool like that, and just kind of throws it as hard as he can and hits the wall and almost explodes. Kind of like you'd imagine a, a, you know, a big bug hitting a windshield. Blurt! He's got a lot of force behind him. He's a strong dude. And this thing's bodies are actually pretty fragile. Like, and any hit of a blade cuts right through whatever. You know, granted, they have very good quality weapons, all of them. Uh, Vincentin doesn't have a weapon. He's not a melee fighter at all. Remember, I said he wasn't carrying a staff. Probably has a dagger in there, but his dagger's not going to do a whole lot in this situation. So he's all spells and throws, while Deacon is kind of a combo of both. Um... They're making their way through, running, and Seraph is growing very concerned at not only the numbers of them, but he can hear his friends. Even through all the noise, it's a very focused sound. He can focus, and he can hear that Mugen is breathing heavier and heavier, and that he can hear that it's, it's, it's becoming labored. He knows that Mugen is getting worn out. He's not in top health right now. He's still weak and fatigued from the, his body trying to fight the, the, the injury and heal. They're in a bit of a bind. So, fearing his friends getting lost to this large group, he begins trying to look for options. Now, he's been running for a short period of time now. He's been fighting, as I said. And less of them are appearing in front. And he hasn't seen a branch off in another tunnel for a minute or so. Right? They're running. And more and more are falling behind him. He has to slow his pace down to not get ahead at this point. 
And so he yells back to both Deacon and Vincentius, can either of you bring the roof down? Right? Can we get all these things chasing us blocked behind us? Can either of you bring the, bring the roof down? Vincentius, slightly out of breath himself, he is a mage after all, but he's also a drowsy, uh, yells, he can, yes. I have a spell that should be able to do that. That moment, Dean is forced to cut down another little dude that was finally from because they're running and they're trying to get past Deacon, and things are fast. Remember, they're they don't run as much as they jump and hop very very quickly. Vincentius says, "Yes, I can with a spell." And Seraph's like, "How much time do you need?" He's like, "I'm going to need about a minute." Seraph's like, "Then you shall have it." And he stops and steps aside, and lets everyone run past him. And as, you know, Dina and Mugen go through first, Dina at this point is now ahead enough that there's not she's not directly being attacked. Most are behind them. Uh, and so she's helping Mugen as much as she possibly can. Deacon passes as well, although turns around ready to support, and Vincentius gets right past him, turns and begins casting a spell. Doesn't hesitate, just gets back and begins casting the spell. Seraph walks forward towards the things, Right? I should say wades for it because they're already there. It's not like there's a space. And got two swords drawn at this point because remember, he switches between two swords or sword and shield. He's been running two swords for a while because he lost his shield early on. So he's been dual wielding swords at this point. Well, his father primarily uses two swords. Seraph actually prefers sword and shield um, but can fight dual wielding when he needs to. And so he stands in the center of that, that tunnel, right? I said three people could stand side by side. If he puts his arms out, his swords will touch both, both sides of the wall. And he basically becomes a blender. He just Anything that comes through, he's just slashing and cutting at it. Even with his speed and skill, a couple are still going to get through. And that's where Deacon is. Deacon's in there at this point. Anything gets past Seraph. Deacon is cutting down, making sure none of it gets to... Vincentius, who's casting his spell. Seraph is getting cut and slashed, and his parts of his clothing getting somewhat ripped. Remember, they have they have basic uh, some some fairly good quality light armor on, but even that is getting cut by these fingers. Somewhat, it's wearing through, and teeth occasionally he'll feel something bite on. He's got to cut it or shake it off, and he's just chopping as much as he can while Deacon's behind him getting the stragglers through. Vincentius finally finishes his spell and he hears, you know, the last word of a spell is very often uh, an exclamation point. You know, it's, it's at that, that last syllable is the release of the energy. It's the finale of the spell. Not all. Some spells can be, actually, you have to whisper. It depends on the spell. But many spells kind of have that big hit at the end, that big emphasis. If you watch any type of movie or fantasy and you and you hear that, you're going to see that happen even though I don't know if they ever really plan it that way. Uh, most actors and films will do that. The last one has the big last blast. Um, and even people writing in the stories and stuff, a lot of times the last syllable is written in all caps. It's just that last syllable or last word really is that exclamation point that bursts the spell from whatever type of spell it is. Deacon hears that 
knows what that means very easily and begins backpedaling as well to get back behind Vince, Vincentius. Vincentius casts his spell and then begins backpedaling himself. This isn't a spell he needs to control. He has cast it, and now he wants to get out of range of it. So he starts moving backward as quickly as he can, turning and such. Again, he's a mage, he's in robes, not as fast as some of the others. Deacon cries out for Seraph as well. Seraph is kind of stuck. He can't turn around. He literally has tens of, I'm not going to say hundreds, it's not that many, but tens of little bodies jumping at him at a time. Luckily, they're limited by space as well, with no end in sight. These things are coming at him. And so he starts trying to walk backwards as quickly as he can, but he hears a cracking in the stone above him and crumbling, and even under his feet, he feels a bit of a shake. So the spell itself is causing almost like a small, concentrated earthquake. Is the visual effect that you can kind of see an audible effect that you hear. The spell actually does something different, which we'll talk about later, but this, it, that's the effect it's having in this situation. And so that cracking noise happens, and he can start to feel dust and crumbles as that rock is shaking, right? And cracking above him, dust and things starting to come down. Even the little creatures seem a little bit startled by this now, and the, the loud noise of the crack has startled them, which gives Seraph a moment to turn and begin running at the exact same instant that the ceiling collapses. With a huge crack noise, the ground just begins to tumble. And it tumbles a short distance away and then starts coming towards them, right? He targeted the spell at its maximum range. So he wants time to get out of it. Vincent doesn't want to die. He knows he can't kill <laughs> Seraph. There's no official rule saying he can't die. We haven't really touched on that yet. Sure, his future self came back, but now they're altering things, right? He knows that whatever happens, he can't stop Sarah from dying, but he has to watch out for himself. And everyone else here, Deacon, Dina, Mugen, he doesn't know if they can die or not. Sure, Deacon's come back from the future, and he knows that. Because remember, they, they know that. If you're wondering how, it's the night that Serenity got attacked by undead, Man in the Hat showed up, and the real elder Vincentius was there. He was the one who was attacking the city, and he. it was when Man in the Hat shows up that did very much dispelled that spell that Elder Vincentius then fled. The only one who saw Elder Vincentius was um, Tevin, if you remember. He was trying to get to where Draven was. A lot of callbacks here, but giving you an idea. But he knows, just because he came back from future, that's coming from a past before changes. What happens if I die now? That's going to be in his head at all times. And something that Elder Vincentius would have warned him about. Listen, I'm here, but if you die, I might disappear. I don't know how that works. You know, not that experienced with time travel. It's not an everyday thing. So you have to be careful you're changing things the way we want it to be. We all are. That's what our group, that's what we're doing here. You, me, his evil drow uncle, remember, working with him, uh, who raised him. We're trying to change the path to get Seraph to a point so different things can happen. So Vincentius is very aware of the fact that he could die, and he has to make sure that doesn't happen. Everybody was, but he's a little more knowledgeable of why. 
The crack comes and it stumbles. Dina and Mugen are well ahead at this point. There aren't any more of these creatures coming from ahead of them. Enough so that they were able to stop. The loud crack startled them, but they got a good head start. Deacon comes running ahead. He, they hear uh, uh, Dina was running with her sword and her torch, because I said she had a torch out. She's put her sword away at this point to help Mugen, so she was just Mugen in a torch so she could see. Deacon couldn't see much at all. He was mostly blind fighting in that situation, which is another secondary skill in second edition, which we can talk about when we get to that point. But blind fighting is a very cool ability. Uh, it's fighting with, like, basically blindfolded, but knowing where the attacks are going to be, based on sound and movement and things. Uh, skill not everybody has. It's expensive to get, but it's a good one. He's cast a spell quickly so that he's, he's basically holding a, a, a light in his hand. But with the crack, a big thing of dust comes flying down the tunnel towards Dina and Mugen, right? Dusty air comes quashing at them. Clouds everything. Even with his light on, it's dusty. Where's the dust going to go? It's a contained area. It's not just going to settle. It's going to take a bit of time. The cracking sound itself is more like a big boom as everything crumbles in. That only takes a moment, but there's still some echoing from above. They can hear a little bit of rumbling as the ground above would collapse in and stuff, depending on how deep they are, which is pretty deep at this point. But the ground above is it's shifting and such. But after a moment or so, the sounds come to an end, and they're just in this dusty thing, and they're all coughing because there's dust in the air, and there's no clean air, and they're probably pulling their, covering their face the best they can to try to get some filter on that. And Deacon has the light out, and Vincentius appears behind him. Maybe he's right with him. Vincentius caught up as well. And Seraph, not to be seen. Deacon cries out for him, and there's kind of a silence, and then even then, there's <laughs> followed by a coughing. A Seraph comes out of there, and Seraph's just got little scratches and cuts all down his arms, and on his cheeks and necks and stuff, little in his head. He's just, he's just covered in cuts at this point, and his armor and parts have just been almost shredded. His armor is basically going to be unusable at this point. He's going to have to replace that. And he's still wearing the armor he brought with him from Serenity. They, both him and Deacon are. And Mugen technically as well, wearing his regular clothes. They're dressed in their original stuff that their parents had got from them, which is high quality. Probably low-level magic, at least. So it's very good armor. Uh, but his armor, at least the, the, the chest arm part of it, stun part of it, is, has just been shredded. It's not going to be useful at this point. Aside from, you know, Dina comes rushing up and everybody's checking each other. Are you okay? Yes, how's Deacon and, and Mugen? Everybody's like that. Vincentius just kind of sits, is just kind of standing as well, watching them do this. With a, just kind of a, a forced stoicness, if that makes sense. He's forcing his face to stay impassive. Because in the back of his mind, right? When all that was going on, cripes, I don't want to die. My elder self never warned me about any of these little things. He knew this tunnel was here, set him on this path, but he didn't know about what was all down here because back in the original time run, Vincentius was not a part of this. So he didn't know what was down in there. He didn't want to die either. But when he was casting that spell to bring the roof down, the only thing in front of him was the tunnel, the creatures, and Seraph. 
you know that in the back of his mind it was like, what if the rock does squish there? Like, what What if? What if I do that? You know, I'm sending it, I'm, I'm, even if I'm doing it the right way, you know, he's in the middle of combat, you know, he might not have been able to make it. You know, he's got to have those thoughts, right? He's been told something always gets Sarah through this. Yeah, but I, I haven't really seen that myself. What if I cast this really hard? Maybe it squishes the guy. And I get to go back and say, hey, I succeeded where you failed. He's dead. Now we get to do the future the way we want to do it, right? So once again, to see Seraph walking out, cut up, injured, slashed, but relatively fine, inside, you know that he's kind of seething, right? Because for just a moment, he's like, maybe, maybe I'll get him where my elder self never could. He's then almost immediately forced to bring a smile to his face as both Deacon and Seraph step over, or sorry, I'm sorry, Dina and Seraph step over begin thanking him for uh, saving their lives. They were so happy he was there in that moment. And checks him, are you okay? Is everything alright? He's like, yes, I'm fine, thank you. It was a wonderful spell. Oh, that was perfect. It was close, but we were able to get there, so on and so forth. Everybody's still armed. They're ready to get going. They don't want to hang out too much in case any of those things slip through. But enough rock fell that they don't even hear any sounds of them. Many of them had to have gotten squished. Uh, Tyler asks, have they been to the future or is it just the future has come to them? Okay, great question. So, two things have come back in time. One of them is Elder Vincentius and the other one is Elder Deacon. Those are the two characters that have come back. Um, Seraph could not. Deacon basically said that when he was explaining to Mercy and Darsh and Dandy and uh, Artemis what why he was there and what all of this was about. He's like, Seraph could not come back. Didn't give a lot of reasons why, just said could not. And so Seraph sent him. Actually, Seraph and Artemis sent him. He made that clear as well. But he said primarily it was Seraph that sent him back. Now, an interesting point of that conversation that no one ever asked me about, oddly enough. And I never brought it up again, but I'm going to do it right now. He mentioned that Seraph and Artemis sent him back. Well, if Seraph was fighting Elder Vincentius for centuries, means Artemis was there too. Because she's an elf. She could live that long, right? So at least in the future where Deacon came back, Artemis was still alive. Well, however long it was. Right? He didn't quite give a specific time period. Was it centuries? Was it you know, thousands of years at that point? It was a long time is all he said. But yes, so those are the only two that have come back. And the only information, the only reason they know about this is because Elder Deacon told them that. And they know that Elder Vincentius is out there and that his, what he's going to try to do is to poison Seraph's path and get him to make the wrong choice when the day finally comes that Seraph has to play the game. The game of gods that's currently going on. The wager between uh, Omniana within itself. Omniana and Anyata. To determine what is the most powerful force in existence. Is it chaos or order? Seraph's choice will basically determine the winner of that game. And it's been implied that he made the right choice the first time. But he never said which... He never told him what choice that was. Whether it was chaos or order or what the question would be. 
Seraph will get to that point one way or another. Is basically what Elder uh, Vincentius has told the younger. There's nothing you can do to kill him to keep him from getting to that point. Existence just won't let that happen. I've tried time and time again. So all the knowledge they have is from Deacon at this point. You have a little bit more through Vincentius because we've spoken about what Vincentius is thinking and some of the run-ins of him uh, when he sent his younger self forward. So you got a little bit of that. Uh, but these guys, have, these guys here have no knowledge of it at all. Right? The other group of kids know about the game and Seraph's path now and what's going on because of Quintius, the magical artifact they're carrying. But Seraph and Deacon know nothing about that. All they know is they're here trying to save Dina, and now they're just trying to keep her safe and maybe find a way back to Serenity if they can determine if that's safe or not. That's their whole focus. Get away from Oramon, get her to somewhere safe. Vincentius, though, may have other plans. He uh, forcibly accepts their thanks and uh, appreciates their assistance. Or was happy to help, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to do it. He's trying to be, oh, it was a teamwork, yes. I would have never had the time to do that if it hadn't been for your amazing swordsman skills. Phenomenal. I've never seen a man move so fast. Which isn't completely bluster. He saw Sarah fighting Oramon a little bit uh, when he jumped in to help. But what Seraph was doing here was a step above even that. It was literally keeping a force of tens of hundreds of little dudes from getting by. And he was just all arms and swords. And he was casting a spell, but he could still see that. And it's impressive to see someone do that. He's heard about it, but he hasn't seen Seraph in action very much at all. He has seen him a couple times, though. He says, ah, happy to be part of the team, working together. But, my friends, we should move quickly. We don't know if there are more of these ahead. And I'll be honest, I can't, I don't think I'd be able to cast another one of those spells, at least not without a long rest. They agree. They're like, okay, cool. I agree. Yeah, we, let's get away from here in case there's other ways around. So they get going forward. And as they're, they're, they're going, they're not running because Mugen is exhausted and breathing is difficult in the dusty tunnel. It's going to take a little while until they get beyond that. But they are making their way... Ooh, we got fuzzy. They're making their way forward as quickly as they can. Weapons to the ready, prepared to go. Um... From this point, they're not seeing any more tunnels left or right. It's like they've gotten past that section. And they haven't come across any more bodies or any more signs of that green icor. All that stuff, they ran past that. So they're believing that that group of broken off tunnels back where they were must lead to where these things nest or live or something along those lines and that they may, have not, they may not be all the way through the tunnel. They're still cautious because they don't know for sure. But they don't see any more signs of those creatures as they're moving forward, or signs of the creatures killing anything this far through. All right, let's see. Let me catch up here. That's part of the team. There we are. All right, I have a little bit of reading before we move into the next spot. Whatever the creatures were, there appeared to be none on this side of the cave-in. They saw no signs of them, and the area was no longer covered in green icor. I forgot I wrote that part, so reiterating. Still on their guard, they forged ahead slowly, making frequent stops to allow Mugen time to rest. Uh, they hadn't seen any more of the branches to the tunnel, until, uh, and it had become just a single path going on into the darkness. 
They traveled in silence. The weight of the world was, ironically, directly above them, <laughs> making all but Vincentius uncomfortable. Because Vincentius is the only one that spent considerable amount of time underground. The big majority of his life. Everybody else, that pressure, that weight, it will get to you, even if you're not claustrophobic. Once, uh, let's see. Once again, they set up camp in a small alcove, clearly designated for that purpose. So they eventually get to a spot where there's like a little cleared-out area to the side. This is a several-day trip, and it was back when the tunnel was first designed. So there's areas you could pull your wagon off, or you could rest for the night. Um, and sometimes they're just used to get out of the way as another shipment may be coming the other direction. Right? So they find one of these, probably an old fire pit set up there. Not, they, they have stuff that they can burn. they got magic, so they can make a burning fire. They don't really do that much, though. It's a very small one because they don't want smoke in an enclosed area. But they find an area like that. They decide to make up camp. It's been several hours without any signs of those little things chasing them at this point. Um, added to their watch, where they're going to have someone keep watch at night, both Deacon and Vincentius both cast spells of warding on the area. So they're literally saying, okay, if anything moves through here, this we're going to be alerted. Several spells of warding on different sides of the tunnel from both directions. They're being extra cautious this time because they have a little bit more knowledge of what the threat is. Now, oh, I skipped it. Here we are. I missed the part. Here we go. Uh, now, to their relief, the night passed without incident. According to Vincentius, they should come to the tunnel's end late that day. So they slept through the night without a problem. Got a good night's rest. Ate, drank, healed, whatever they need to do. Seraph takes a few swigs from the special flask, waking up the next morning looking mostly completely unscathed, which again, Vincentius getting a good look at that for the first time, but knowing about it, probably knows about the flask and Seraph's need for blood. He knows all about that stuff. First time he's really getting to see some of that stuff. And you could sure he's he's watching for it. He's taking mental notes. He's been raised knowing this man is his enemy. And the one thing that's going to keep him from, uh, you know, basically what his life goals he's been told are going to be. <laughs> so he's watching for any weakness in that armor, if you will. Mugen was feeling much better the next morning. Whether it was uh, Vincentius's salve or his own st uh, sturdiness, the wound itself had closed and he no longer felt fatigued. Uh, so he heals relatively quickly just because of his sturdiness and such. He has a very high constitution. Surprisingly, it's the one stat that gully dwarves have relatively high. They are dwarves, after all. Um, so the wound is you know, still sore, but it's not infected. It's cleared. It's mostly closed up at this point. And he, he's even able to pick up his hammer and move it a little bit. He's like, I couldn't probably do a serious prolonged fight, but you know, in a pinch, I can move it around. He's not feeling as tired as he was. They've been um, so they've been told, "Hey, we got to travel one more day's worth." What, roughly late afternoon, almost to evening, we should get to the end of this tunnel and the exit out, which will take us to where we're where we're headed. Now they had been traveling for several hours when they came across some serious trouble. Just ahead of them, they could see the tunnel came to a dead end in some type of cavern or cave. They approached very carefully, but after a few moments of watching and listening, realized that nothing living was inside. Now, this tunnel was not supposed to go through a cave. Vincentius knows that. He talked to the goblins. He knew about that. He knew the lay of what they to expect. 
this cave should not be here. They go inside. The cave itself is definitely naturally formed. And the floor itself is broken and layered, right? So I kind of think about this cave kind of like the inside of a spirally seashell laying on its side, right? So it's, 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 it's got grooves and gouges so the, the, when you get into this tunnel, it's not flat. It's like a little cliff, then a drop, then a cliff, then a drop, and it's broken different levels. So it's not a smooth cave at all. Lower in some areas, but still uh, more than high enough for them to walk through comfortably. The big issue is the tunnel did not continue on the other side, right? It's supposed to be a natural tunnel, like, or this built tunnel that should go the whole way. And there is no exit in this cavern matching the exit that they're coming into it from. What they do notice is from up a little bit higher to the right, the ground is up a little bit higher, water is coming down, almost just like a small stream. I mean, ankle deep. It's not even knee deep. Ankle deep. Just a small water flowing through it. Seraph climbs up to take a look, but is surprised to find that the water literally comes out of thin air. It comes right out of the rock, even though there's no opening. The water just appears to be coming from the rock itself. Talked about this. You guys should know what I mean by that. The water source literally is just coming straight out of the rock. The water trickles down, continues down the cliffs, and then down at the bottom of this cavern, they can see that it continues down another natural type uh, cave tunnel. But that's going deeper and they can see that across from them, there are a couple small on different heights, other tunnels that are leaving, one on the right, one on the left. Uh, but they look natural tunnels. They do not look like what they just came through. So they've reached a point where the merge happened. And they're like, oh damn, how do we continue on with this being a problem? So... Vincentius is in a silent rage because this cave should not be here. His easy plan of getting them through to the other side, earning their friendship, so on and so forth, has just become more complicated because now he has to find a way out of this. And he's really the only one who can, his knowledge of how the Underdark works. They have no choice but to try and exit. They can't go back the direction they can. They caved it in. There haven't been any other branches since. There's no other way around. This is it. So after looking at what was going on, they decide to follow the water. Even though the water is going deeper, as they're looking at that tunnel, it's still going mostly in the same direction that they are. It's mostly east, but it's a bit northeast. Which again, Vincentius knows this. He has direction sense. Again, it's a secondary skill. They have to try one of these exits. They can't dig one out themselves. They decide to follow that because worst case scenario, if this does require them to be underground longer to find another way out, they have at least a water source. And Sentius tells them that water is not always the easiest thing to come across to underground. Uh, and when you find it, you know, that's, that's, that's a valuable resource. At the same time, because of it, they have to be aware that other things that may live down here may also be attracted to the area because of that water. So that's something else they have to be careful of. With not much other options, they have no choice but to continue on to the east. Well, northeast at this point. And they follow the river down, climbing down slowly and carefully, and following that tunnel. 
They travel for a good hour, hour and a half. The tunnel again, sometimes going up and down, but it's turned more, and they've they're going very close to the uh, to the west again, or sorry, east. So they're they're, they're pointed in the right direction. Snapdragon Tunnel is mostly going in that direction, even though it does kind of wiggle, twisty turn at times. So at least they're headed in the right way. When suddenly, gradually, from ahead of them, they begin to see a soft, glowing light. So up at, up ahead in the tunnel, soft, glowing light. Cautiously, they put their own torches out, dip them in the water, put those out. We don't want any, if there's lights, it could be a problem. Seraph moves forward first, looking to see what's there. And as he moves forward, he finds that the tunnel again ends into a very startling sight. The tunnel ended into a large cavern, its floor about 30 feet beneath them. The water that they'd been falling falls like a small waterfall into a uh, pool of water directly beneath them. Small one, bigger than a pool, but not like a whole lake or anything like that. The cavern itself was incredibly large, and growing on its walls were some kind of moss that radiated a soft, bluish light, which lit the cavern enough that torches were unnecessary. Made it like nighttime, right? Not perfectly clear, close enough you can see without a torch. In the center of the cavern sat a large building made of black and white stone. From its design, it appeared to be some kind of temple. Though dedicated to who... They did not know. The building was clearly very old, and also covered in spots in the glowing moss. They saw no signs of movement or any of the temple's occupants. For occupied, the temple must be, since large braziers were lit around the structure, their flames growing brightly. So there's braziers with fire in them in this cavern. Well, fire's not just going to burn forever. Somebody has to be feeding that fire. Well, they don't see any movement down there or anyone walking around. Someone has to be somewhere who tends to that. The water pool in the bottom area is still rocky. There's not like vegetation and such, maybe a few little crappy plants. But the water itself in this area definitely explains why the cavern might have been chosen to build something. Why relatively deep underground, but not super deep underground? They don't know. Vincentius clearly says, I don't recognize this architecture. It's not drow. It's not Durger, dark dwarfs. That's how I pronounce it. There's arguments there. Uh, it's, not it's not deep gnomes. So it's not dark dwarfs, not dark gnomes, and it's not drow. Uh, it's because it's not elithids. And they go, what's an elithid? Uh, mind flayer. And they're like, oh, mind flayers. Like, yeah, definitely not mind flayer. I'm familiar with what that looks like, too. And they're like, you've, you've seen that? He goes... No, I've never seen a mind flare colony. No one seeing that ever comes home. <laughs> we know it exists only from the few that have randomly escaped or come across it by accident and fled. Uh, but trust me, no one in the Underdark is not trained on the signs to look for for mind flare communities. That's the worst place anyone could end up in the Underdark. Drow are bad, but nothing <laughs> compared to mind flares. They have no choice but to move forward. They're going to have to continue on. They have to climb down the wall. Because the water is the end of the tunnel. It's 30 feet beneath them. 
They climb down very, very carefully. The rock here is natural cavern. It's not hard to climb down. There's even little ledges they can hop down to, climb a bit, hop down. Seraph, of course, up and down like it's nothing. Um, Vincentius casts a small spell and just floats down. Because he's silly like that. He floats on an angle and lands on the edge of the water. Everybody else has to climb down into the water and wade across it. Uh, it's about stomach deep. So Seraph does carry moving. So he doesn't have to get wet. Looking at the cavern, even though they're down here and they're being as quiet as they can, they can see that there are other waterfalls or traces of water also following and falling from different heights at different locations in the cavern. So they're like, okay, well, on that side, I can see some falling out. If we can get past the tunnel and climb up to one of those, we might find another tunnel that's going the right direction. We're still heading towards and may go back up to the surface. This one led up technically if we come in from this end. So maybe one of those will lead up as well to the surface or get us closer. Seems like their best move. There's not really anywhere else to go but this cavern. And so they decide to move forward and they're going to stay on its southern wall. They're going to stay close to the wall and try to avoid it completely. Moving quietly, cautiously, and prepared for anything. Which is how all parties should be in every situation. Vincentius does take a moment to get a sample of the glowy moss, which is something else he's not seen before either. He's always gathering samples. Very funky. So they begin to move forward very quietly. Now they're in their single file line again, trying to stay close to the wall, with their eyes almost always watching the temple. Because just you can tell a temple by the way it's built. It doesn't necessarily have to be a temple. It just has all the earmarks of what you'd expect. Although they don't see any signs or statues that would advise them of what it's a temple of. But again, it's very likely from a completely different world than any of them. So it may not be something that any of them are familiar with, right? At its closest point, the way that the temple is sitting... Taking the path they are, the closest they'll be to the temple is about 30 feet. Right? So this wall leads. They're going to get that close to it before they can start moving away again. Kind of squeezing by a corner of it. That's the closest point to them. Again, they haven't heard any other sounds other than the distance sounds of water falling. Because they can hear that from several locations. So that does, in their mind, help a little bit. That's a little bit of covering noise, right? You're not going to have the uh, hear footsteps as easily when there's a constant echo of water. And uh, they're very careful not to trip. Nobody rolled a one in this situation. It was at that most narrow, narrow point, when they were at the closest point from the temple, that suddenly, without warning, all of the flaming braziers flared. So, big burst of flame comes up from all of them before resettling back down. And a noise is heard from the temple, like stone grinding on stone. The friends again begin to try to move a little bit quicker. But eventually, Deacon calls out that he sees movement coming from the temple. Sure enough, a group of robed skeletons, which are holding some type of staff-spear combo, are flowing out of the temple in several locations. Some of them moving to catch up behind and some moving to
to be in front of them. Vincentius sees undead. Now you can imagine his thoughts are, ha, something I can deal with. And Vincentius says, hold while I cast a spell. Like literally, hold, i got to stop for a minute. And he begins casting a spell. And basically what he's going to try to do is try to take over the undead. The hope is that he's more powerful than whoever it was who created them. Try to wrestle control of the undead away. He's very confident in his abilities because his abilities are quite hefty in this area. It's his specialty. Unlike some of the other spells he knows how to cast, these are his specialization. So he's, his, his belief is, okay, I'll just take over the minds of the closest skeletons. If I can only get a few of them, then at least they can fight each other and maybe buy us some time out of here. I have to wrestle away control. He begins casting his spell while his friends arm themselves, prepared for combat. Even Mugen's got his, he's working his arm, he's got his uh, hammer out, if you will. And Vincentius casts his spell, and then he stops for a moment where he's prepared to fight for control. And then nothing happens. And he curses in drow. None of the other people realize that's what he does. But he curses in drow. I should totally come up with a word for that. And he turns and tells them, and Seraph goes, what is it? What are they? And Vincentius yells back, run. <laughs> and they're like, whoop, okay. Like, you know, that's all they needed to know. He goes, what are he goes run. They're cursed dead. Now, to the rest of them, that doesn't mean anything. But to Vincentius, it means a lot. And so he says, this is not something I can deal with. We need to go. We have to get away quick. And so you can imagine the five of them are now just balls to the wall running as fast as they can towards the direction they were headed. Now by this point, they can see one of these waterfalls is a little bit more uh, built. Okay? So there's stone. There appears to be a, a stone well around it. And there are stairs that go up, hit a little landing and then turn around and go back up that lead to that. So this was some type of entrance or exit tunnel where the water is this larger of all the waterfalls is coming out of. And so that's their targets. The closest one to them, and it's heading east, the direction they want to. At least the opening appears to be. So they'd already determined, now this close, like, stairs! Okay, sweet. If we can get on the stairs, it's a lot easier to defend from the high ground, if you will, Anakin, uh, on stairs. So they start booking it. Now, they move as quickly as they can, but unfortunately because of the way that the temple was set, some of the undead do manage to get ahead of them. And it doesn't take long before they are forced into combat. Um, a couple of skeletons like literally just jump in front of Seraph, and Seraph just busts right through the first couple before having to melee the others. And they get into a fight, right? It's, it's a regular combat. Now, they're still against the wall. They're using that as their benefit, keeping the skeletons from encircling them. And at this point, there appears to be between 25 to 30 of them. No more flowing out of the temple that they can see. So there is a limited amount, which helps, unlike the last one. Um, and skeletons, they can break. Vincentius is again back to casting spells, what he can. Uh, being a necromancer, he knows what's going to work best. Again, fire works well against skeletons. Uh, an interesting point, for those of you who may not know this, certain weapons work better against skeletons than other weapons. For example, a hammer 
mace, or morning star does way more damage to undead than a sword or a dagger does. Bladed weapons are designed to cut flesh. That is their purpose, to stab you, to puncture something, to cut you deeply, to bleed you out. That's what blades are for. And a blade, sharp enough, can cut through bones, maybe even break it. But you get a war hammer, a mace, a morning star, even a quarterstaff, a blunt object will shatter bones. There's no meat blocking it now. It's just blunt on blunt. So when playing D&D, or most fancy things, a blunt weapon is going to be more damaging towards an undead that does not have flesh. Or, I guess, something living that doesn't have flesh. Although, what that might be is escaping me at the moment. I'm sure there's something. <laughs> so, they're in combat, right? And Seraph's strength with his swords allows him to really break arms and bones and maybe even cut, chop a head off uh, with his swords. The others don't have quite that benefit, but they're still using very good quality weapons and doing what they can. The hardest one in this situation is going to have a problem. Uh, again, Vincentius is using his spells, so he has no melee. But Dina has only been learning to use her blade. Um, and you being a smaller, pointy, stabby weapon, that's kind of what she's been taught to fight with. It worked the best with her for her experience, size, and, and, and skill level. So she's going to have a much harder time fighting any of the skeletons than the rest of them are. Um, Vincentius lets out a blast of what looks like um, of air ahead, and it blasts through and it hits three of the skeletons, and the bones literally just blow apart. He's like, it's like a, it's almost like a shock wave that just shatters the bones from however they're being held together. Deacon, of course, casts a spell here and there, but he's mostly melee fighting. Now, they're making good time, if you will. They're, it's a hard fight, but the skeletons aren't overwhelmingly skilled. Many skeletons are not. You have to be pretty high-leveled undead to have good weapon skills. They move stiffly, but they're just as deadly. Weapons are still sharp. They still cut. Might even be a little bit rusty. Ooh, infection. As everybody's fighting, Seraph and Vincentius both notice something at the same time. Coming from the temple is another skeleton. This one is probably a good two, two and a half feet taller than any of the other ones that they're fighting. Remember, the ones they're fighting are robed and look very clerical, although, again, they can't quite see any symbols that any of them recognize as a god that they know. This taller one that is coming out is wearing some type of circlet on its head, is much larger, and the raggedy, well, the robes that it's wearing are in uh, better condition. Or fancier, I should say, not better condition, fancier. They're all in good condition. And it begins making its way towards them. This is a problem. This is the daddy skeleton. You can tell if this, I don't know if this is what's controlling the other ones or not, but whatever it is, it's bigger and it looks more powerful. Uh, and in its hand, it, all, it holds a large staff. Now, as it reaches the other skeletons, the other skeletons literally step aside to let it through. They don't like part like the seeds or nothing, but they will step aside as if they, they're not looking behind them, but they'll step to the left, it'll walk by, they'll step back into its position. They're still moving to fight forward. And Seraph, seeing this, knows that he's going to have to deal with it, right? 
Everybody else is already fighting against skeletons the best they can. Dina, at this point, has had to retreat behind the others, uh, kind of against the wall, where uh, she's a bit more protected. Uh, well, even Mugen is still whacking away with his little hammer, which is not a little hammer, it's a big hammer and having pretty good effect. Uh, he's only smacking him around the knees, but one good hit from him takes the legs out on anything, and then a crash down on a skull or a bag will break it pretty easily. The large one steps forward, and its uh, eye sockets glow. Not in the same way, but, you know, glow uh, a, a bluish color. And the skull at the top of the staff that it has glows as well. And it opens its mouth and some type of noise comes out. It's kind of like a, like a growl. Uh, obviously, there's no lungs, but it, that kind of a noise. And something comes firing out of the end of the staff, out of the skull, the eyes of the skull, and hits Seraph clear in the chest. And he's knocked on his ass. He's like, blah! And this force comes out of it and hits Seraph in the chest. He wasn't expecting that. And he stumbles and falls backwards. The other skeletons don't move forward on him. But the big one steps forward and brings this, the staff up to bring it down on Seraph, who's winded, he's gasping for air. It hit him, it knocked the wind right out of him. Dina yells out. Deacon tries to push back a skeleton to get there. And the big skeleton swings the staff down quickly and fat, or quickly and strong towards Seraph's head. But it doesn't strike. Because in that moment, Vincent, Vincent, Vincentius steps in the way. And reaching out, grabs the staff before it comes down. So he's coming down at the staff. He's just got one hand. And he stands in there and basically catches it. The man doesn't have a weapon of his own. His hands are mostly free. The thing is trying to push it down. You can see the skull starting to glow. And Vincent, Vincentius is holding this, and his lips start moving. He's casting a spell. He's doing a chant, a spell of his own kind. And the large skeleton, its mouth opens and closes as if it's speaking as well. And the two of them have almost like this mumble fight. I hate to say it that way, but that's the, it's unintelligible words that are barely audible. And they're both saying their own spells, looking at each other, trying to overpower each other with one way or another. The others are fighting as best they can. Seraph has finally gotten back to his feet, but with Dean is crying out, he's, he's having to st step back and defend himself against skeletons, which are now stepping in to fight him, since Vincentius has basically stepped in and is taking the, the brunt of what was meant for Seraph. Deacon has Dina tightly behind him as he's been pushed back against the wall as well, and Seraph manages to knock a couple skeletons away and fight next to them, but he has to find a way to get to Vincentius. None of the other skeletons are fighting Vincentius. It's just the big one and Vincentius, and neither of them are moving. You know, the big skeleton's not even moving its other hand. It's just literally holding the staff, and it's glowing. It's like he's trying to cast something at Vincentius, and Vincentius is either casting a spell back or a spell to block it. They can't tell. They don't know anything about what he's doing. But he's sitting there, but as they're watching, Vincentius, is, is, his hands are starting to shake, and they can see the staff is slowly moving closer to Vincentius. Vincentius, again, is a mage. He's not super, super strong. This skeleton is pushing it closer to him, and it appears as if the skeleton is winning. Vincentius is struggling to overpower the priest, 
but he can feel his legs getting weaker. He knows that the, whatever this, whatever caused this priest, because that is what it is, into this state was something powerful, and the priest was very powerful in life. The eyes on the skeletons on the skeletal priest begin to glow brighter, and he starts in a loud cracking noise. Or loud, you know, loud. His voice begins to go louder. The skeletons does, and Vincentius feels his strength beginning to fade. It was then that a loud crack echoed through the chamber. The priest's skull explodes into pieces, which I'll be honest, probably doesn't feel real good to Vincentius because he's pretty close. But the skull literally explodes into pieces. With just a minor, with just a moment of delay, the skeletal's body falls, and hits the ground. Once again, the braziers flare brightly, before settling back down and going dark. And as they do, the other skeletons' bodies collapse to the floor. As he has done in the past, everyone stares at Mugen, who stands there holding his pistol in his off hand. Quit playing with the bones! I want to get the hell out of here! He literally blew its head off. You have to, again, I, I want to stress the blunt objects on bone that I talked about earlier. Mugen literally is like, oh, enough of this, boom! What Mugen's carrying is not something most forces in this world is used to dealing with. And he can't use it often. It's not the fastest thing to reload. But he's very good at aiming the thing. And it doesn't matter how magical you are, a large blunt object fired heavy at your head is going to have physical damage. Uh, and in this situation, when it's an unprotected bone, it shattered it. Unsure if there are any more threats inside or what else may happen, Seraph quickly urges the others to move fast up the stairs into the above t uh, tunnel. If they can get up there, they'd be in a much better defensible position. Seraph steps over and asks Vincentius if he's okay, and Vincentius nods, and the, they're the last two up the stairs. In his hand, Vincentius still holds the priest's staff. As they climb up to the top, they find that the tunnel itself, while still primarily natural-looking, there is uh, a path of stones to the side of it, so there's a walkway running alongside the water. With no sign of pursuit, and no desire to dilly-dally any longer, they quickly make their way up the tunnel. The tunnel goes almost directly east, well, sorry, southeast, the direction that they were hoping to go. While they're moving, Seraph asks, what was that? What did we just face? What did we just happen? And Vincentius explains to him that there are four types of undead. There are the raised dead. Those are the dead that are raised by people like himself, necromancers, priests, people who have found a corpse or a body and have raised it back into an animated state. He goes, then there are the self-raised undead which are primarily going to be things like your liches. Things, beings of such great power that they were able to prolong their life past death. 
Then there's the third time, the infected dead. Uh, a lot of times these ones start as raised dead, and that's going to be your zombies and type, uh, who have the ability to pass on that affliction by biting or clawing or hurting another uh, a living being, the zombie infection that we're all so familiar with. And then the last option are the cursed dead. The cursed dead were created by higher powers or through some type of last power. I say last power, it's like through their last action, through their betrayal, they are cursed to do something. Or they kill someone who with their dying breath curses something. In every situation, that curse itself is brought into existence by a higher power. Doesn't necessarily mean a god, right? There are demons and other things out there, and uh, Freaks, we've talked about that. But uh, it would have to be something of quite a bit of power to cause a cursed dead. And a cursed dead are nearly impossible to be taken over, except by the most overwhelmingly powerful necromancers. Because at that point, you're overtaking the programming, if you will, that a godlike being has given to this undead. You are cursed to guard this building forever. You are cursed to you know, kill everybody who walks down this road, whatever the case may be. This is your thing you have to do, and you're going to do that non-stop until that higher power releases you or something manages to destroy you. And it's that last group, that last uh, section, that is what they just dealt with. Cursed dead. Um, what that curse was that caused them to be there, curse being an, uh, a word I want to stress, not always evil. Uh, it, it, cur it, you, know, you can almost consider them blessed dead at some point where someone is a god or something is using them to protect a holy site. It could have been something of that nature. But it still this comes down to the same thing. They're cursed to still live beyond death by a higher power. A non-necromancer wizard, but an actual higher being. Now, of course, some cursed dead are more power some undead are more powerful than others, and some are even harder to control. Seraph says, You kept its staff. And Vincentius looks down at it and says, Yes. This, whatever it is, is powerful. It's some kind of conduit. I've never quite seen anything like it. I'm hoping with time, I might be able to unlock its uses. And they can see that it's a, it's a wooden staff. And at the top of it, what looked like a skull, uh, turns out to be carved. So it's not an actual skull, but it's like a, a wooden skull that has been uh, decorated in, with some type of like metal covering. So it almost looks like a silver skull, silver whitish or ivory skull on the end of, of, of the staff, but it's all one solid piece. Now, Vincentius is very interested in this staff because Elder Vincentius has never mentioned a staff of this nature. So it may be that he just found something that he never found in the original timeline. And what benefits that might give them he has yet to quite figure out. Only knowing that this is very powerful. He could sense that the moment he put his hands on it. They continue up the pathway for about 30 to 40 minutes when they surprisingly come across the Goblin Tunnel again. This path crosses right across it. They find the tunnel, continuing the regular direction. Overwhelmingly pleased to see it, they get back on their original trail and continue directly east towards the exit. They travel 
they've obviously they've been slowed down. They've run into a bunch of stuff. They're not on uh, not on schedule, so they travel much later into the night than they normally would. All determined to finally get to the end of this blasted tunnel. Growing weary but determined, they finally come to the exit. At the very very end is literally a solid wall, but they expected it this time. On the wall next to it is a very large stone uh, wheel, gear-type wheel, with a metal handle on it. Um, normally, something large, like an ogre or multiple people, would have to turn this wheel to open the door. But fortunately, they have a seraph. So seraph puts his hands, begins turning it, and even for him it's a strain. But as he's pushing and turning, the, a grinding noise hears, and the stone in front of them literally slides to the side. Now, he only opens it up enough for them to get through. He doesn't need it wide enough for a wagon, which it could go. But he manages to get it open enough that they're able to get outside. And they step out, overwhelmingly happy to see the sky above them. Turning and looking, you can see that the uh, tunnel itself, or the, the entrance, is built into a small stone cliff. It's almost like a big hill that kind of comes out of the ground. Or it's obviously on the ground. And on one side of it's like a just like a broken, natural-looking cliff. The door, when closed, would just look like part of that. But now they're finally out, and of course, not too far away in the distance, they can see lights from the nearby town that they expected to see near the exit. The town where Vincentius said that he would help them get additional supplies and assistance getting through the mountains, which are a huge mountain range that they can now see from where they are. Past that village, they can see the silhouettes, even in the dark, of just a massive mountain range going left and right both directions, right? Or north and south, technically, they're facing east. So they can see this massive mountain range, and they know that hopefully safety from Oromon and whatever else will be on the other side of those mountains. Uh, hoping to find a more comfortable place for the night, they head towards the small town. That is where we'll be stopping for today. So, today was very combat-heavy. I don't have a lot of episodes of that nature, but sometimes it happens. Um, but several specific things happened today that may seem small now, but may be more important later. Um, and some of you hopefully will remember those, and we look back and be like, ah. Uh, but now there have been several situations where... Vincentius has fought side by side with them, uh, and they very easily consider him an ally, which is Vincentius's primary goal here, to let them so that they see him as a friend or ally, part of the group, someone who will help them and fight by their side, even though it was situations he hadn't quite expected. That mission, at least the first part of it, has been successful. What comes next, and the next step of his plans, but we'll find that out in the next episode. Because the next episode will be the last part of the Seraph storyline for a little while before we step over to the other group. So hopefully, you'll be looking forward to that. So two weeks from today, we'll be doing the last part of this current storyline and stepping into the other group for something I've been planning for a very long time. Very excited about that part. Uh, Miss Ashley Cooper says, Excellent story as usual. What were the tunnel creatures? Custom. They're custom creatures that I created. So they're not specifically in a monster manual. I do a mix. 
I, I like to create my own stuff and I like to use traditional monsters. Uh, so this is just something that I created a while back and hadn't had an opportunity to use yet um, and felt that this was a good, a good situation, a fit for them. Uh, they're reminiscent of the Sharnlings, if you'll remember, when the uh, Dandy Darsh group uh, were trying to get Michael's soul back because it was broken in Menandra. They were taking back the Dwarven Kingdom. They fought uh, a Sharn, which is a big, nasty, multi-headed creature. Um, and there was all the little Sharnlings, which were also multi-headed and things of that nature. Uh, the combat, in my mind, was very much along that. Same type of thing, but with a different type of creature. But the same kind of idea. You're stuck in the tunnel with a large amount of these little things with uh, razor-sharp claws in this situation, and teeth, uh, where they just want to eat you. <laughs> and you've got to try to survive. So uh, it was fun to do that. That said, uh, that's been a little bit longer today than it has been lately. So uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, a little bit longer story. Uh, two weeks, I'll be back here for some more uh, Merged Worlds. And same normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern. Again, I would ask if you're watching this, whether it's today, tomorrow, or 10 years down the road, please remember to click that like button, subscribe to the channel. And if you are out there listening to this uh, in audio on uh, Spotify or iTunes or Amazon audiobooks and podcasts, I'm on all that stuff. Uh, it would be awesome if you wouldn't mind uh, giving us a follow over there. If you have an account on one of those, uh, give us the five stars and the ratings and reviews and all that stuff. It definitely helps get the podcast uh, in the ears of more people, which is really why I just want to share my story with as many people as I can. So thank you to everyone who's given me the opportunity to do that. But that is going to do us for today. I will look at setting up a Behind the Dice episode here in the next week or so. Uh, where we can talk a little bit more about how second edition works for actual playing purposes for those people that are interested. All right? That's going to do me for tonight. You folks have yourselves a wonderful evening and a good couple of weeks, and I very much hope that I see you again two weeks from tonight for a little bit more Merge Worlds. All right? You guys have a good day. <laughs>